0: Moving then from the monarchy of David and Saul and and, and Solomon and that unified king and all of Israel was together under this same king, because of the corruption in Solomon's reign, God chooses another king, Jeroboam, to be. He's not a descendant from David, but wanted him to be the king over Israel. But because, David, because God had already promised David that a king from his family would always remain on the throne, and that was largely a prophecy about the Christ. It, Jesus was going to be the son of David. He's going to be the king overall. He gets to be the real one. He also fulfills it in David's family. So Rehoboam is the son of David who becomes the king after Solomon. Yeah, he's the son of Solomon, excuse me. He becomes the king. Solomon is an evil guy and he, he, he wants to rule by fear and he trusts people and he does this horrible thing at the very beginning of his reign to unify people under him because they were gonna be afraid of his tyranny. Solomon was too nice, you need to be a mean king. He comes out to be a mean king and the kingdom is torn apart. 10 of the tribes become part of what we call the Northern Kingdom. Uh, the kingdom of Israel will be known as that. And that that's the bulk of the people, those we're gonna see in the moment. The the geography they're having is pretty similar. But the reign but the Israel is the northern tribe. Ten of the tribes become part of that kingdom. Jeroboam is the first king of that. The second, uh, the other tribe is known as the tribe of Judah. It's Jerusalem. It's kind of the main story continues with Judah more than we do Israel, though it's kings and chronicles tell both kingdoms quite a bit from the story. Judah becomes the main one early on because the other kingdom falls quicker to to sign. So Jeroboam's the first king. It's in the northern part of Israel. The capital is in Samaria, which is why there's all problems with Samaria later on in the New Testament. The capital of uh, Judah is in Jerusalem. And then the timeline of the kings, which... Um, I did make a slide. No, I didn't make a slide of it. You have a slide of it in your in your package. Just a whole long list of kings and dates. That's just to kind of help you when you read through. You'll kind of keep in track of who was when and what king was contemporary with what king and the other tribe. A lot of those kings, when you read... Kings and Chronicles, I don't know about you, I don't remember a lot of the kings and who follows who, but in that list of kings which you remember, most of them are corrupt. Again, I think what we're seeing in the divided kingdom is the Lord of the Rings from J.R.R. Tolkien. Power corrupts. Even those who seek to use power over other people for good end up destroying themselves. That's just the litany of human history and I think it's captured well there. It's captured well here too. The corruption of kings and sometimes a good king comes along and they'll have a season of repentance and returning to God. But there, there's idolatry going on during this time. The prophets of Baal, Elijah and Elisha, are the first prophets that come in the divided kingdom. and They're holding their feet to the fire in terms of the, the falseness. They're, at one point, Elijah feels like he's the only one left. And God says, no, no, I have a remnant. This is a very torrid time in Israel's history. There's not a lot of great stuff going on here in the sense that they're learning stuff. This is that period of repeated unfaithfulness. Sometimes that leads to enemies, the destruction of their sin comes upon them. They call out and repent. God might give them a good king for a while. And again, they saw God as giving them a king, even though these kings were progeny of future kings. That they, again, they've got God responsible for everything, but the next king comes and sometimes he's good and invites some people back to good stuff. But again, when he invites them back to good stuff, he's inviting them back to the law and the temple worship, which isn't working. It's not helping people find real freedom. It's not helping. So they fall victim again to whatever kinds of sin and struggle that comes. So throughout the divided monarchy, there's this faithfulness of God, unfaithfulness of humanity. God keeps loving them, working with them, sends prophets to begin to speak to them and bring life into them. And then finally, we've got two things that happen toward the end. Israel in 722 B.C., is overrun by the Assyrians. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. But the Assyrian Empire is close to Babylon. They're conquered by Assyria and they lose their freedom. With Jerusalem and the land of Judah, it comes later, almost 140 years later. 586 B.C. It's hard to count down numbers to keep straight. This is B.C., so we're counting down. So 140 some odd years later, 586 B.C., finally Judah is conquered. So it goes on longer. So there's more of Judah's history, more of the later prophets that are going to come out of Judah. Here's the breakdown of what part of the kingdom, the Green Kingdom to the north. This is the land of Judah with Samaria about in here somewhere as the capital. This is 10 of the tribes and the domain they had. These are two of the tribes. And the reason this almost looks the same in terms of of uh, size in terms of is because a lot of this is desert and not really livable. But the, the, the tribes pretty much in Jerusalem is down in here and was the capital of, of Judah. So that gives you just a sense of it. And it's still in that, if you remember, between the sea and the desert and everybody coming through explains all the problems they're having with the Philistines and the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Everybody wants that land. And because Israel's not living in trust with God so that God can be her defense, she's getting overrun by those things. So the timeline we're moving to now beyond David through Isaiah is kind of our grapevine that we're using to talk about that, the things that lead up to Isaiah, and then the things that flow out from Isaiah toward the exile, which the first exile with Assyria happens before Isaiah, the other one happens 100 years after Isaiah. But the, the minor prophets during this time, and I've included a lot of notes because I knew we got this point. I don't have time to who wrote who and who was where and what kingdom. And I don't have it in my memory because I don't keep that there. But I would say you, when you read the minor prophets, and, and, and they're all called the major and the minor prophets, not because some were better and some were major leaguers and some were minor leaguers. It's simply to do with how much they wrote. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel wrote big books. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, and Nahum, they, they wrote little books. But we've got them as we've got them in our Bible. We've got the books of history, the wisdom literature, the major prophets, the minor prophets, and we lose all the chronology just because of the way we've arranged those things. Even uh, Esther appears way in earlier than Esther. the last book written uh, that we know of in the Old Testament, but we've got her put way up there before psalms where she doesn't need to be okay nehemiah and esther and ezra are all up there and they all come later as we'll see so let's just talk about the prophets a bit amos very early on during the time of jeroboam second kings I've, i've given you the references and it's just helpful when you get ready to read amos or obadiah or just remind yourself of the setting who are they talking to where is it in this chronology of the exile? Is it to the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom? Or both? And some of them talked to both because there was a lot of communication between the two. They weren't really at war with each other, but they weren't cooperating together either. And so you can get a, a sense of what Amos is talking about and why Hosea and why Hosea is the guy that marries the prostitute at God's command. Because God wanted him to be a living demonstration of the unfaithfulness of Israel. I mean, it's just... An amazing thing what God asked Hosea to do and how he loves Gomer, the woman who's not, which is a strange name for a woman. I think Gomer's, I guess, more attractive back in the day than it would be today. I don't know too many Gomers. Um, and then we got Jonah's prophecy and we don't really know his date, but it had to be before Assyria conquers. So he's, he's early on. He, he prophesied to Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. And th- now you know why Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, when God says, go to Nineveh and prophesy against them. He knew if he went and if he prophesied, they would repent, God would relent, and Assyria would just still be there. And he didn't like Assyrians, he wanted God to kill them. He thought, if I don't tell them, then God still gets to whack him. So he tries to run away, God brings him back, and, you know, he's his little fish and sorts out that whole thing. He spews him up on the beach and now he goes into Assyria He tells them God's going to destroy them if they don't repent, and doggone if they don't repent. And Jonah's not excited about this. He's out angry at God. Why did you do this? These are your enemies. Again, Israel's sense of privilege instead of responsibility. So Jonah's out under this tree that grew up overnight and provided shade for him, and he's so excited to have it. And then it withers up in a day, and now he's all angry at the gourd tree because it dies, and and God uses this as a lesson. Why are you angry? it was a gift to you and then it was gone and why are you angry about the things and why are you angry about the Assyrians if I wanted to say them but Jonah actually gives Assyria more time he actually keeps them from being destroyed because of his message and their repentance and God relents. But then as happens, they didn't repent forever, repented for a season. And then those that come subsequently Assyria grows on this power, they become a dominant military force. And they're the ones that come and get Judah where Jonah is from. So you understand the complexity of the thing God asked Jonah to be a part of. And it's not just, well, I just want to run from God because I don't want to do what God wants. It was what God was asking him to do and what he was afraid would happen. And he didn't want God to be a God of mercy. That's the problem. And then Isaiah, and then we have the fall, which uh, we have the fall of the northern kingdom at this point. Assyria comes in and rides over some number of years after Jonah. And then Isaiah begins to prophesy. He prophesies after the fall. So he's already talking to them about, you know what's happened to Samaria? What's happened to Israel is going to happen to you if you don't repent and turn to God. Isaiah's great at unpacking all the things we thought God wanted that we find out God really doesn't want. I'm tired of your festivals and your feasts and your sacrifices and your offerings. We're really finding out that God wanted hearts that were His. He wanted a people to be His own. We do find the language of this very compassionate Father image, even though, again, the word Father is only used of God, I think, I don't know if I have this statistic right, three or four times. So it's not often used in the Old Testament. It becomes the predominating analogy in the New Testament that we have this Abba, this Father. In the Old Testament, He's not known as Father. He's known as God and Judge, and they, they don't even speak His name. They don't even voice the name of God. They abbreviate it. They use the word Lord. But it's just so holy, so distant, so whatever. And God's coming now through Isaiah to begin to, you know, comfort, comfort my people. That's the language of this. I want you to be mine. And I want to mount up on, you to mount up on wings of eagles. And there is, Isaiah is a reflection of the whole Bible, actually. It's 66 chapters long. And the Bible's 66 books long. And the first Uh, was it 39? And there's 39 books in the Old Testament. And the first 39 are the prophecies of judgment coming upon Israel and Isaiah's kind of story and all that. And the last 27, and there are 27 books in the New Testament. And and Isaiah didn't write in chapters. So this is kind of one of those curiosities that kind of just happened. Chapters and verses were added by some French preacher on a horse, you know, much later in the day when people were trying to look up stuff and it was hard to find a verse you wanted or a sentence you wanted. So we put chapters and verses to everything. Isaiah didn't write that way, but the way this book got composed for us there's 40 chapters that reflect all that judgment, follow my covenant, and that God's tired of the things He, he asked them to do. You get the sense now that God's going to win them out of the religion that they're embedded in, that they thought religion was the answer, not a stepping stone. They, got, they, they, they stopped being pilgrims on a journey and put tents down. And isn't that what we do in our own spiritual life? God shows us something wonderful. We get in a wonderful place with a group of people, and we pitch a tent, and we're going to stay here forever. And then God's moving on in our life. And suddenly we feel like, gosh, he's not as present as he was. And this group of people don't work together as effectively as they were. We, 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 if we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to keep that sense of flow and movement. God didn't ask. it. We're, we're sojourners. We're pilgrims in a distant land. We're moving to a greater city than any city we have in this world. And all that language, Old and New Testament, I think becomes very much an encouragement to be to stay a pilgrim. What I know today is just what I know today. Not pitching a tent here, not thinking I'm done. Every time I read the scriptures, I'm looking for more of God's light and wisdom. I'm looking for things he wants to show me that lead me to live in a more spacious place of his life and freedom. I'm looking for more of the flesh and Wayne's waywardness to fall off. I'm a pilgrim on a journey. I'm not camping out anywhere saying, yeah, I've got it done. And almost every denomination, unfortunately, is we got here and camped out. Now we're defending this theology for the rest of the generations instead of we're going to keep moving as God makes himself known. This is a a redemptive flow. As much as it was leading up to the coming of Christ, I think it still is leading up to the return of God. And I think the story of the New Testament post Acts 28, the story of the life of the church is pretty much reflecting the same of Israel. It's times of God's faithfulness and our persistent unfaithfulness. Times of renewal lost to man's own efforts and programs and abilities again. And God has to invite us into a new kind of renewal. And then we get lost in that. And our history is not going to be all that different from Israel. And we Christians oftentimes, I grew up thinking there were people God liked, us Christians and people God hated, which were non-Christians. And I wanted to be on the home team and not the away team. And, you know, I had that whole thing so that I could look with contempt on the world instead of with compassion on the world and see them as sheep without a shepherd. And when you when you try to love what you have contempt for, you're just going to be condescending. And the world knows you're condescending. And that's why they're not engaged with us and our message and the God we know. But when God keeps you on a journey and you're being alive in him, then you get to love and God brings you into a more spacious place and that more spacious place lets you allow in greater freedom. But God's still growing us up. It took even after Jesus comes and lives this... All of us, this priesthood of believers, we're all equal in the sight of God. And I think the New Testament makes that case in spades, as they say. It's not until 500 years ago that we begin to overturn the idea of the divine right of kings. And some people get to rule over others who aren't worthy of rule. And the idea of one man, one rule, and we're all equal under the law, I think that's godly. Culture didn't even begin to buy into that until the 1500s some of the language of the French Revolution, and then the American Revolution. And now we have something that's more godly the world has. I think feminism, even though I think feminism was basically at its heart, we women have the right to be as selfish as you men have been for all these years. And you really have a hard time faulting that logic. But I think feminism began to grace an equality of women that religion had, even the Christianity religion had not embraced for many years. And I think it was an important gut check for us to say, well, you look back at some of the old stuff from the 60s and 50s when I grew up and how women were treated and how they were regarded. I I think we've made incredible progress. You understand? God's still wooing culture into a greater reality. Now, it's headed for a cataclysmic finale. That much we know as God sums up this whole age. So on the one hand, there are things God's teaching us that we're we're becoming more relaxed in and more free to see. At the same time, evil grows darker and darker in the land, which means the light only gets brighter and brighter, but that's the construct we're caught in. Then you get to Zephaniah, Micah, Habakkuk, and Joel, more of these prophets. These are coming after Isaiah. This is still pre, what they call pre-exilic prophets. So pre the exile of Jerusalem to Babylon. So those are prophets that again fit in that milieu as well. I'd love to talk about each of those, but we just don't have time.